Hi, this is a podcast from Just World Educational, a talented team headquartered in Charlottesville, Virginia, that is educating for a just and peaceful world. Our website is at www.justworldeducational.org. I'm Helena Cobbin, the president of Just World Educational. For 10 days in the middle of July, our friend Rabbi Brant Rosen was in Israel and Palestine, mainly in the West Bank area of Palestine, where he was part of a 60-person solidarity action organized by an inspiring new group called the Center for Jewish Nonviolence. The delegation as a whole had a busy schedule designed by Palestinian leaders and activists in the area. Then most evenings, Rabbi Brandt would huddle with his laptop to compose yet another blog post about the day's events. I urge you to go to his blog, which is at rabbibrandt.com, and read those blog posts. You'll find them grouped together from July 11th through July 27th. I've been a fan of Rabbi Brandt's for several years. Indeed, in 2012, my publishing company, Just World Books, published his first book, Wrestling in the Daylight, A Rabbi's Path to Palestinian Solidarity. And right now, we're working with him on an updated second edition of the book, which will come out in May. On July 28th, I was able to connect with Rabbi Brandt by phone. Two main questions were on my mind. I wanted to hear his main takeaways from his latest time in Palestine. I also wanted to ask him about something closer to home here in the United States, namely the fact that in his home base in Chicago, he is both the head of a small and spirited Jewish congregation called Sedek Chicago and the Midwest Regional Director for the leading Quaker service organization, the American Friends Service Committee. How has it been working out for him, being both a Jewish leader and a Quaker leader? It was a good conversation. Here's how it went. I'm sitting here on the phone with my friend Rabbi Brant Rosen, um, who is just back from Hebron, where he went with a delegation of around 50 people. Was it 50 people, Brent? Altogether, uh, there were probably about 60 of us. Wow. From a new organization called the Center for Jewish Nonviolence, and you spent a number of days in Hebron and the areas around there doing some amazing things. And I know you've written about this, Brent, but could you tell our listeners what your main takeaways from this it sounds like a very intense experience, what your main takeaways were. Sure. Well, as you said, this was with a uh, an organization recently founded in the last two years called the Center for Jewish Nonviolence. And the, the goal of the organization is to bring Jews from the diaspora uh, to uh, stand in solidarity with Palestinian activists on the ground in, in the West Bank and, and to create uh, a movement, a broad-based movement of, of American Jews and Jews from around the world of different stripes, by the way. Uh, we had some liberal Zionists. We had people who define themselves as anti-Zionists. We had people representing groups from J Street. We had Jews who were involved in Students for Justice in Palestine. So politically, we were pretty diverse, but we were all 
united in our desire to stand in solidarity with, with Palestinians who are resisting nonviolently against their oppression and, and creating relationships with them. So the, their first major delegation was to uh, a place called Tent of Nations, which you may have heard of, Dawood Nasser's farm, uh, not far from Bethlehem, that's been under demolition order for, for many, many years, uh, for too many years. And uh, they went there to replant trees, uh, thousands of trees that were destroyed by the IDF. And this year, uh, we partnered with uh, a few different groups in and around Hebron, as you said, uh, in the city of Hebron itself with uh, an amazing organization called Youth Against the Settlements that's led by a uh, a Palestinian organizer named Isa Amro, who's just one of the one of the great you know visionary leaders in this movement. And we also uh, did work in the south, in two villages in the South Hebron Hills, Um Al Khair and Susia. Uh, two Um Al Khair is a Bedouin village, and uh, Susia is a, a, a similar village that were originally lived in caves in the area that were evicted, uh, and their their home turned into an archaeological theme park essentially. So these two communities are also constantly under demolition, and uh, we partnered with Israeli partners on the ground, a group called Tayush, another group that's called All That's Left, which is made up of uh, diaspora Jews who have moved to Israel, who do the solidarity work uh, day to day. And so together, uh, there were about 60 of us, and uh, we did three pretty major actions while we were there and uh, created some really strong relationships. And I think came back very, very excited. I think that we're really starting to build a movement in, in, here in America and around the world of, of Jews who, uh, who are understanding now that the situation is intolerable and that we need to move from uh, addressing this simply as a political problem to, uh, to address politically to a liberation movement where we need to stand in solidarity. So this is, in a sense, a very specific um way of acting Jewishly and as a citizen of the world where you were using your Jewish privilege because I gather there were clear instances when you were there when um, the Israeli military authorities that control everything in the West Bank were treating you and your Palestinian hosts and partners very differently. Yes, absolutely. And the, one of the really important things about this new organization is they really understand the concept of solidarity, which means that we were there because we were asked to be there by our Palestinian partners. And the things we did and the actions we participated in were ones that were developed and organized by our Palestinian partners and served their needs. So we really took our cues from them. But we were very much aware of the fact that as uh, diaspora Jews, we had a certain amount of a certain significant amount of privilege in a state like Israel that is a state, you know, by and for Jews, basically. So we sought to leverage that privilege, um, and we did it a number of ways uh, very successfully, uh, which is another exciting thing about this movement. So, for instance, in Um al uh, rather, Asusia, rather, I mentioned that their original home uh, back in the 80s, they were evicted from their home because there was an archaeological dig going on there, and it's been turned into an archaeological park, and they're not allowed to, to even enter. It was long known that that area had archaeological significance, I think maybe even as far back as the British mandate. But um, they, Israel started excavating in that area in earnest around the 1970s. 
And the people of Susia told us they saw the workers come, and they, you know, you know, many, many of them, most of them, lived in the caves in that area. Uh, it's not unusual in the South Hebron Hills, in particular, to uh, to have had uh, these cave dweller communities. And uh, they, you know, saw the place was being excavated. They, you know, they didn't have a problem with it. It, it was, um, you know, nobody bothered anyone. And and little by little, they realized that this place was being transformed, uh, and eventually they were they were told they had to leave. They were evicted, and uh, they moved down the road uh, to to a, an area adjacent to it. They were eventually evicted from there, and then moved to an area that was a part of their agricultural fields. And they've been under demolition order ever since. And in the meantime, a Jewish uh, settlement called Susia has grown up right next to them, uh, and uh, um, that's been the reality ever since. They are constantly in uh, living with the reality of uh, of eviction, and they're, it's been one of the major centers of Palestinian resistance in the South Hebron Hills. So uh, going back to the issue of privilege, one of the things that they uh, had told us was something they were very eager to do was just simply to go back and visit their original homes. There are several generations now of, of uh, villagers from Susia, and uh, they're not allowed to go in to see or show their children or grandchildren where their, you know, where their ancestral home was. But we as Jews as could could go in. So we, uh, they concocted uh, a, a plan, developed a plan whereby we would all together uh, walk over to the park, uh, buy tickets, and go in together. And uh, we had a whole contingency plan of nonviolent resistance for if and when the army would show up of what we would do. But in the meantime, we just bought tickets and went in. And um, you know, the older generation were showing the younger generation where their homes were, uh, where they used to play. It was very powerful to see these young children running around, you know, up and down the, you know, the stairs of these caves and the, these archaeological sites, uh, knowing that their parents and grandparents had, had once played there. And we gathered in a, uh, excavated synagogue, which actually was a site, or it was, there was a mosque on top of it that was destroyed to excavate the synagogue, and were addressed by the leaders of the village, uh, who talked about the significance of that moment. It was a very, very powerful moment, and and really the only way we could have done it was because we were the ones, um, as Jews, to be able to gain access to the park. And as it turned out. We spent about two hours there. We left. The IDF never uh, showed up uh, while we were there. But as we were walking back down the road, we saw a huge busload of soldiers roaring down the road toward the park, which we had already left. And then about two minutes later, we saw it heading back in the other direction. So um, we managed to go in without having to deal with the Army, which was also a blessing. You talked there about a mosque that had been built atop the synagogue, and the mosque was demolished so that the synagogue could be... Um, excavated, which is a nice segue into my next question, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because here you are as a um, Jewish American rabbi and the leader of what sounds like an amazingly um, inspirational new congregation there in Chicago called Sedek Chicago, but you also work for the Quakers as the Midwest Regional Director for the American Friends Service Committee, which, by the way, next year is uh, marking its 100th anniversary. 
of service to humanity in many, many different contexts, including Palestine and including the American Midwest. So here's the big segue. Um, how does how do you really, as somebody who sees yourself and is a, a Jewish leader and a Jewish social justice activist on a range of issues in your temple and in other ways, how do you also be a Quaker leader? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a great question. And one of, I think one of the, the best answers I can give is that American Friends Service Committee is, is a faith-based Quaker organization, but it has a wonderfully interfaith culture and always has. And they make no bones about the fact that they are rooted in Quaker testimonies, Quaker values, and uh, the leadership, the, the main leadership, the corporation and the, the board that runs the organization are Quakers. But the staff are uh, of many different faiths, and what binds us all together essentially are these common values that really are, I believe, common to all of our faiths, which, as Quakers would say, is seeing the light of, of God in every human being. You know, as a Jew, I would, I would say that comes from the Torah, which is that uh, all human beings are made in God's image. I think it's two different vernaculars for essentially the same sacred truth. Uh, and the importance of pursuing justice and um, that, that you can't have peace without justice and that those are two sides of the same coin. And that also comes from my tradition. In fact, all of the the basic religious values that that motivate this organization are, are completely in line with my my faith as a Jew. So I've never felt uh, um, out of place. I think if I feel if, there, if I feel out of place at all, uh, it's more just culturally. You know that. There's a Quaker. Every religious community has its own culture and history, and you know I have mine as a Jew, and Quakers have theirs. But uh, you know, because maybe because it's a peace church, and because the the concept of fellowship and uh, hospitality is, are so central to to Quakers, I've never been made to feel uh, like an outsider ever. Uh, it felt very, it felt like a very comfortable home for me to be in. And the other thing I would say, which makes me in some ways even more comfortable than I do in my own Jewish community, is that, as you mentioned, uh, AFSC has been involved in Israel-Palestine for a very long time. In fact, um, AFSC were among the very first uh, uh, people in after the Nakba, after the uh, uh, the the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians from their homes in 1948 and turned into refugees. Uh, AFSC were one of the first people in, in into Gaza in particular to do uh, relief work and advocacy for, for Palestinian refugees. I've been doing that ever since. And for many, many years, I've gotten to know people in AFSC through activism on Israel-Palestine and taking the kind of approach, the kind of justice-based approach that um, has been anathema to, to the Jewish community. So... When I worked as a congregational rabbi, that part of myself, which was a very important part of myself, I in many ways often had to either censor or um, uh, be very careful about how I did that that activism. And I, you know, in my in my book, I write a great deal about how difficult it is to to do Palestinian solidarity work as a congregational rabbi in the Jewish community. But in AFSC, I can, ironically enough, I can be my total self. I can be my authentic self on this in this issue. I can go out and speak as a rabbi and as a staff person of AFSC, and I can say exactly what I believe. 
Um, I get paid to do it, <laughs> and uh, I don't I don't feel any uh, compunction about it. I, I I don't have to self censor, and that has been has been quite wonderful actually. So, in your work um, as AFSC's Midwest Regional Director, you cover a whole broad swathe of the country, including St. Louis, Missouri, and places that have been really hotbeds of some of the Black Lives Matter activism. Have you seen connections in that work with the work that you have continued to do on Palestine? No, absolutely. Uh, increasingly, AFSC is doing work in communities of color uh, throughout the, the country. And here in the Midwest, you mentioned St. Louis also. Uh, we have a freedom school there. We have a freedom school in the, the Twin Cities region. Um, we uh, do a great deal of work here in Chicago, where I live, um, with many of these, these groups on the ground. And, uh, yes, uh, interestingly enough, you know, I – these have all also been interest, uh, areas of concern and activism for me, but, but primarily my work uh, has, has traditionally been around Israel-Palestine. But as, as I'm now the uh, regional director for, for nine different offices that do a variety of different kinds of programs, whether it's uh, you know urban justice, uh, police brutality, uh, mass incarceration, immigrant justice, I'm finding that they're all part of the same basic system. Uh, that I've been I've been uh, working against as a Palestine solidarity activist. It's the same basic system of militarization and oppression and and colonialism uh, and economically speaking, you know, the the capitalism, the, the corporate interests that are profiting from this oppression. You know, I've been able to be in a place to connect the dots to see that Israel Palestine doesn't exist in a vacuum, and um, this intersectionality I think is coming. Uh, very, very naturally, especially to young young organizers that we work with, uh, who are finding common cause and solidarity. You know, there's a a movement called from Ferguson to Palestine, for instance. Uh, you know, the Ferguson occurred roughly around the same time as the war in Gaza in the end, fall of 2014, and uh, it was uh, one of the little lights of hope during a very, very tragic, horrible time. Was that uh, uh, while Ferguson was going on, which occurred a little bit after the war in Gaza, um, Gazans were tweeting out to uh, notes of solidarity to uh, Ferguson organizers who were under fire uh, in St. Louis. And they actually would tweet things like how to make homemade remedies for tear gas, for instance, because they were exactly the same tear gas canisters that were being used that were used on them. Uh, Corporations make those tear gas canisters, and right, exactly, they're made here, right here in the United States. And um, so, and it's not only tear gas, by the way. It's the same corporations that you know. It's security corporations, it's security companies like G4S, for instance, that uh, or Hewlett Packard, who who do uh, security both on the wall, the separation wall in Israel Palestine, and the, the one on the southern border of the United States. So, you know, we're in a position to realize that these this isn't these aren't really separate programs and separate movements. It's all part of one what I think is a, a growing intersectional movement that is uh taking on uh, uh a system that we seek to increasingly shine a light on and 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 eventually dismantle. Uh that's that I think this past week 
we're speaking right now during the end of the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia, and I've been told by friends in Philadelphia that the real important work is not being done inside the hall but out in the streets where they, they say the People's Convention is going on, um, where, you know, they are taking on the, the elites and the establishment and saying that this isn't simply a, a question of changing our president or, or um, changing our, you know, what party runs what, but actually looking at the system as a whole as something that's incorrigibly, incorrigibly corrupt and, and needs to be addressed as a whole. So thank you so much for speaking with us, Brent. Um, really thank you. It's always a pleasure. And looking forward to your the next edition of your book, Wrestling in the Daylight, A Rabbi Across to Palestinian Solidarity. Thank you. I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying putting it together and looking forward to seeing it.